Welcome to the DBSA podcast series. I'm your host, Dante Freeman. In this episode, we're going to talk about pharmacogenetic testing. Our guests today are Dr. Mark Pollock, who talks about what exactly pharmacogenetic testing is, and Dennis, a peer who tells us how pharmacogenetic testing impacted his life. Enjoy the show. Dr. Mark Pollock is currently the Chief Medical Officer and Vice President of Clinical Affairs of Myriad Neuroscience. Prior to joining Myriad in 2020, Dr. Pollock was the Granger Professor and Chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at Rush University Medical Center and Director of the Rhodes Home Program for Veterans and their families at Rush. Dr. Pollock is an expert in the treatment of patients with anxiety disorders, including panic disorder, social anxiety disorder, PTSD, generalized anxiety disorder, and the associated comorbidities. He also specializes in the development of novel pharmacologic agents for mood and anxiety disorders, use of combined cognitive behavioral and pharmacologic therapies for treatment refractory patients, presentations and treatment of anxiety in medical settings, and the treatment of substance use disorders. Thank you, Dr. Pollock, for talking to us today. So our audience heard a little bit about you in the intro, but would you like to tell our audience a little bit about you? Sure. Uh, so uh, I, I started my career doing uh, work with patients and doing research at, at Mass General Hospital. Uh, in Boston, I was there for about 30 years and did work people with depression and with anxiety disorders and post-traumatic stress disorder. About 10 years ago, um, I, I moved uh, to Chicago and became a, a chairman of psychiatry at Rush University Medical Center. And then uh, this past year, uh, I uh, joined uh, Myriad genetics as uh, chief medical officer uh, for neuroscience. So in, in my career, in some ways I've moved from working um, very intensively with individuals and trying to develop new treatments to try to improve uh, the care of patients with uh, depression, anxiety, and other uh, mental health issues. Um, and then uh, as a chairman, try to work with uh, and, and grapple with uh, the concerns that we had that there were lots of people who were looking for uh, treatment and help and services, and that there were literally just not enough providers uh, who could uh, provide that care and started to think about how can we make care more efficient so that uh, uh, people who needed help and wanted help uh, could get it in a timely fashion. So uh, part of my motivation in, in moving to uh, Myriad and working uh, in the area of um, pharmacogenetics was the hope that we could make care more efficient, more personalized, so that when a person came in, we could figure out what was an appropriate treatment for them early on um, so that they could get better uh, faster. Uh, without having to go through multiple uh, trials of, of different treatments, and also that that would allow us to take care of more patients. Yeah, we hear often from our community that 
some things that they have a hard time doing is going through a bunch of different treatment options, whether that includes different medications or um, different types of therapy, and it, and it discourages them. So what would you say to a patient right now who, who feels that way? They're, they've gone through treatment after treatment or medication after medication. Well, I think it's important, one, that people not give up hope, that we do have effective uh, treatments uh, for patients with depression, anxiety, other kinds of, of mental health issues. But I also understand uh, the frustration, the future of psychiatry, of mental health treatment, uh, and, and in not just in mental health treatment, but really in medicine across the board, is to try to personalize treatment, to uh, understand uh, the person's, the patient's individual biologic predisposition and to try to target treatment um, so that it's more effective for them. So we get rid of some of this trial and error. So for instance, um, in a large study that was done in depression, uh, patients got started on a, a standard antidepressant, about a third of them got well, got very much better with that initial treatment. And that's terrific, but that also meant that two thirds or more of patients were still struggling with depression. Um, and uh, it, uh, these individuals went through a number of different additional trials, three, four, five or more sometimes uh, trials to try to get better. And that takes weeks, months, sometimes even years and can be horribly frustrating. So our interest in using information about the person's genetics um, is in trying to uh, match an appropriate treatment for them, one that they'll tolerate well and respond to early so that rather than having to go through multiple different trials, we can put them on something soon uh, that has a better chance of getting them better. What exactly is pharmacogenetic testing? Sure. So, you know, we all know that we inherit uh, genes from our, our parents and that genes determine lots of things about us, our hair color, our eyes, our height, um, uh, probably our predisposition to different um, medical conditions. It also uh, determines how we metabolize, how we process things that we take into our body. You know, we all know that some people can eat whatever they want and never gain a pound, and other people um, have to be very careful about what they eat or, or gain a lot of weight. That has to do in part with individual differences in, in how they process food. Similarly, there are differences in how people process and respond to medication. So some people can take a, a medication and their liver is very efficient at metabolizing and processing that, and um, their blood levels uh, are very low as a result of that. Other people don't process it very efficiently at all, and they may get very high blood levels. And in the first case, they may not respond. Uh, in the second case, the high blood levels may cause them to have side effects. So uh, that those differences in metabolism and also in how people respond uh, is to some extent under the control of our genes 
what we inherit. Um, uh, and uh, as a result, if we can look at those genes, determine what kind of variations people have in their genes, we can make predictions about who's gonna process a certain medication efficiently, um, who's gonna have trouble processing it, and that will help the physician or the clinician who's taking care of them make a decision about what's an appropriate medication to put them on. We know that um, while the medications that we have available, and the truth is there's ongoing work going on trying to develop even better medications, uh, for instance, than we have now, but we know that uh, um, some people with, let's say, depression um, will do well on a given antidepressant. Other people who in many ways look to have the same kind of depression, they may have the same symptoms, um, they may have been uh, struggling with it for the same length of time, same, dip, same presentation, they won't respond to that uh, uh, given medication. And at this point, uh, we're only now starting to get um, a, an understanding of why that may be. And part of that reason looks to be, again, that we have different genetic endowments. We process medications uh, differently. The medications respond to the, uh, or react to the receptors in our brain um, differently depending on our genetics, um, the genes we have. And that will help uh, determine treatment. And again, could be used to guide treatment selection earlier on. And from your side of things, so from the clinician side of things, how, how does this test help? Well, right now, while uh, all clinicians, and, and depending on how experienced they are, have a sense that we um, at, at times think that a given medication uh, might be best for a patient um, because of the symptoms they're presenting with or because of our past experience, the truth is uh, that there is some fair amount of trial and error uh, at times in terms of selecting uh, medications uh, for the treatment of a given uh, individual. So using this test and understanding the patients, uh, the individual's genetic predispositions will help us earlier on decide this is a medication the patient is likely to metabolize well, process well, tolerate okay. This is a medication that it's more likely the patient's gonna have difficulty with or won't respond as well to. Um, so rather than having to go again through two, three, four, five different trials of medication, we can decrease uh, the likelihood of, of having to go through this trial and error uh, by having that information earlier on. Sounds good to me. The question, the thing that's burning in the back of my mind is how is this test performed? Is it just a swab? Do they have to draw blood? Like how are they retrieving that information? Yeah, it, it's a fairly simple test. The test is performed by doing a, a cheek swab. So basically a, a swab gets put in a person's mouth and uh, scrapes the inside of the cheek. So it's not particularly uh, painful. And then the uh, cheek swab is, is sent to the lab and uh, we get the answers back in a couple, three days. It can either be done um, in the uh, clinician's office um, or if uh, the 
clinician orders it, uh, the kit can be sent to the uh, patient in their home and uh, mailed uh, back. So they don't necessarily even have to come into the office, which of course has been a, a, a bigger deal um, with uh, everyone's attempt to socially distance because of uh, uh, COVID. Yeah. And another thing that's on people's mind um, is privacy, the privacy issue. So what happens to, you know, if a peer sends their information in, what happens to it after the results come back? Well, the results get sent back to the uh, patient's uh, uh, clinician, a physician or nurse practitioner, whoever's uh, treating them. And then uh, that gets put into their medical uh, record. Um, so it, it is covered by the privacy protections that all medical information is covered by. So I've heard you talk about this and, you know, we're listening to this podcast and I'm saying, now I want, I want to ask my doctor, how do I do it? I'm going to go tomorrow and say, I want PGX testing. How does a, a peer do that? How, how would they ask their clinician about this test? Well, I, I think the, the easiest way is to literally go in and, and uh, ask about it. And, and uh, most clinicians and, uh, uh, should be at this point aware of it. We, uh, we do a, a fair amount of education of, of providers and clinicians. Um, we, there's a, a website uh, also that uh, people can go to. Hey, Dante here. I just wanted to give you that website that Dr. Pollock is talking about. That is genesite.com. That's gene, G-E-N-E, site, S-I-G-H-T.com. Again, that's genesite.com, G-E-N-E-S-I-G-H-T. Now back to the episode. Explains about pharmacogenetic testing, um, uh, both oriented towards uh, patients, potential patients, and also information that uh, uh, providers can uh, access. So, so again, stuff on the web, uh, I think, lays it out pretty straightforward, and uh, uh, the company makes it uh, uh, fairly easy uh, for clinicians to order the test. That's great. So if I go into my doctor's office and say, hey, I've heard of DBSA had this great podcast. They talked to Dr. Pollock and I want to know more about pharmacogenetic testing. Most clinicians would be familiar with this process. Yes. And yeah. again, if they're not, um, the, the website is straightforward and the company also uh, you know, provides uh, information. There are numbers that clinicians can call to get uh, walk through the process of ordering uh, the test. So it, uh, that should not be a big barrier, frankly. What does this test actually look like? What does the readout look like? What, what will my clinician and I be looking at? You know, the test gets, the, the swab is done, uh, gets sent to the lab and in two or three days, the report comes back uh, into a, a portal that the a computer portal that the um, clinician can uh, access. And then the report basically uh, categorizes um, medications in ter terms of whether there's evidence that this person, this, this patient, has um, a uh, potential genetic interaction, a pharmacogenetic interaction. So pharmaco from meds, genetic interaction um, that either could be problematic that they either 
can't metabolize it or they metabolize it so well that a person can't have uh, a good blood levels or that um, uh, they don't seem to have a significant genetic interaction uh, with the drug. So it should be able to be used uh, as typical or that they're intermediate. So that dose adjustments might have to be made. So the report comes back again, uh, the drugs that the patient's likely to take are categorized in one of, of these three ways. So the re report is pretty uh, easy and straightforward to interpret and, and we give uh, clinicians um, pretty clear guidance about how to understand the results. So you're telling me that my body can be too good at processing certain drugs? Sure. You know, it, it depends to a large extent in, in how your liver takes the medication and whether it metabolizes or chews it up very rapidly so that you can't maintain a good blood level or the, the liver chews it up very slowly. So you take a little bit of the medication and your blood levels keep rising and you might have side effects. And, you know, we, we see this all the time. We think that big, large people should be able to take lots and lots of medications and not feel it. And small uh, people uh, can't, uh, uh, can only take a little bit. But in fact, um, it has more to do with how your uh, liver metabolizes drugs uh, than it has to do with, with uh, whether you're big or tall or heavy or, or skinny. Kind of that old adage of like, oh, I can drink more because I'm bigger might not necessarily be true. Exactly. It, it, um, it probably has to do with how efficient your liver is. And that is to a large extent under genetic control. Um, it, the genes that you inherited from your parents and uh, in the past uh, to uh, a large extent uh, control that. I, I think we hear all the time about not being able to process a drug because your body just doesn't agree with it. I, don't, I think it's rare, though, that we hear that, oh, maybe your body, your liver is just too efficient. I, I don't think that's something that's very common. Well, it, it um, you know, it, there are certainly uh, true that, um, you, know, you'll, you know, as a clinician, I, I might give a patient a medication and they swear up and down they are taking it and I believe them and uh, then I measure their blood and I measure their blood levels and there's nothing in their blood now it doesn't mean they're not taking it it just means that their liver is chewing it up metabolizing it so quickly so efficiently uh, that uh, it, it uh, doesn't build up at all uh, in their blood and if I'm relying on that medication to help them their depression or anxiety, that's a problem, right? We're hopefully at a, an inflection point, a tipping point in, in medicine, and this is evolving that we're in the next few years, and we're going to be much better able to target a particular treatment for a given individual um, to say, this is, this is the person's genetic predisposition. This is what we know about them. And as a result, they're going to do better on drug A, than drug B or this class of medication than not. This is really the promise of, of personalized medicine and the uh, pharmacogenetics uh, uh, is uh, I think gonna be an important piece of that.
What if my clinician, though, they're a bit skeptical about pharmacogenetic testing? What, what should a peer do in that situation? Well, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, it, it obviously depends on the relationship between the patient and their, uh, their doctor, their uh, clinician. Um, if the patient has had a good response to the treatment they're on and they're doing well, they're tolerating it okay, then there's probably not a need for any kind of additional mm -hmm. uh, interventions. But uh, if the experience uh, has been that the patient's been on, you know, one, two, three more different kinds of medication and is still struggling with depression or anxiety or uh, psychosis, whatever their difficulties are, and they're still having uh, problems or they're having trouble tolerating the medication, then I think uh, the question the patient needs to advocate uh, strongly uh, to uh, get this kind of information. And is this something in your experience that you've seen typically covered by insurance or is this something patients will have to cover out of pocket? Some insurances uh, cover it. Um, others uh, do not. Uh, the company has uh, committed to working uh, with patients uh, in the event that their insurance doesn't cover it um, and uh, has committed to uh, making sure that the patient's out-of-pocket costs are not more than $330. So not nothing, but um, uh, again, the, the company is aware of that and is committed to working with patients where insurance doesn't cover it. I, I do have a question about, so I got this test, my doctor does the results, um, and they say that medication B is going to work well for me. Is it as simple as including that medication in my treatment plan, or are there more steps that we need to go through? What what should we do after we get this test? I, th I think the um, test doesn't necessarily say, you know, this drug is the perfect drug for you. What it does is give um, the clinician a, a, a list of uh, different medications that the patient is likely to, uh, more likely to tolerate okay and not have trouble uh, in, in metabolizing and processing and uh, drugs that um, uh, the patient would probably be at increased risk for having difficulty tolerating. And then the, the clinician can use that information to, to select an appropriate uh, medication to increase the odds that they're going, or the patient's going to do well. Right. So this is more of a tool. This isn't a, a magic bullet, so to speak. I think that's a great way of thinking about it. It's what's been called a clinician support tool. Mm -hmm. So it helps um, give some data uh, that helps sharpen uh, the choices that the clinician is making in terms of, of selecting an appropriate treatment and taking it out of the realm of, of just simple trial and error. Yeah, a clinician support tool. That, that might be um, something we need to add to our vocabulary over here. <laughs> or deci decision support tool also. A decision support tool. Okay. We so need more acronyms, right? We do, right? We, we always <laughs> do. I remember being in college in freshman year, and they gave us this big book of all the school's acronyms, and I was just like, no one's ever going to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a peer takes this test them and their clinician work together to strengthen their treatment plan or modify their treatment plan. 
Um, but what are some other things that they can do to, you know, better their wellness after using something like this? Well, um, I, I think in general, um, medication is one part of a, a treatment plan for uh, many people with who are having some mental health concerns, but it's not the only uh, um, piece of uh, uh, treatment for a lot of people. So for those uh, individuals where it's appropriate, continuing their therapy uh, is gonna be uh, uh, an important piece of uh, treatment, um, doing things to maintain their wellness. So when it's all possible, and this is obviously gotten even more difficult now with, with the pandemic, but doing things like getting out, exercising, um, trying to decrease social isolation. This has been a big uh, a concern, obviously, as many of us are, are stuck in our homes uh, to a greater degree, but you know, using whatever tools, the phone, the internet or something to maintain uh, contact with people in our lives is gonna be uh, critical exercise, nutrition, all these things, in addition to appropriate medication selection are gonna be important in trying to uh, uh, get uh, people as well as possible and back on their uh, path to uh, enjoying uh, and having a productive life. Yeah. Well, we appreciate your time, Dr. Pollock. Is there anything that you wanna leave our audience with today? Well, I, I think we've uh, covered it uh, pretty well. People should, um, uh, if they have more questions about this, they should go to the website. They can look up Gene's site. They can go to the uh, uh, website that explains about how this testing is done. And, and uh, there's information as well uh, for clinicians. And I think the more people can do to educate themselves uh, in general, um, uh, the better at this point. Um, I think over a million people have had uh, uh, gene site testing, and we're really expecting that, that uh, this um, the use of pharmacogenetics, uh, gene site testing, others, um, is going to start to influence uh, care um, over the over the coming years. Well, thank you, Dr. Pollitt. We appreciate your time. It's very nice to talk to you. Dennis is a peer from Pennsylvania who lives with depression. He details his wellness journey from construction to certified peer support specialist and tells us how pharmacogenetic testing impacted his treatment and improved his wellness. Thank you for joining us today, Dennis. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I am fine. So, Dennis, let's just start. What Can you uh, tell our audience a little bit about yourself? So I am a um, 46-year-old father of two, father of three. I, I had lost a son in a vehicle accident a few years ago. Um, thank you. I, uh, I live near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, I, I've uh, had some good things happen in my life, and I've had some uh, not-so-good things happen in my life. And, and we appreciate you talking to us today. So Dennis, we know, especially during this time of year, um, a lot of peers out there live with seasonal affective disorder. And it's easy sometimes for them to ignore the symptoms because it's something that they live with, right? At, when did you notice that 
um, your depression was a little more than just seasonal affective disorder? So um, I, I, I hadn't experienced even seasonal affective disorder, not one time my entire life until uh, a little bit beyond the age of 40. I may have been 40, I may have been 41, um, but nothing prior to that. And it, it came like clockwork every November and it went away like clockwork. I could write it on a, on a calendar, uh, you know, end of March, it would go. Um, until, until 2014, uh, that November it, it had come and it, it had gotten a little bit worse every year. And I never really thought about that and recognized it or realized it until, um, you know, me being hopeful and anticipating that the spring of 2015, late March, early April, it would go away. It did not go away. It, it, it got worse and worse and worse and uh, actually developed into major depressive disorder lasting two years. Would you have described, before 2015, would you have described yourself as someone who lived with depression? I, I don't know that I would have said yes. I would have certainly said I am now someone who all of a sudden lives with seasonal affective disorder. Not necessarily full-blown depression. Right, absolutely not. Um, because, you know, uh, all every other month of the year, I was perfectly fine until that third week of November. Uh, you know, a lot of people will will ask, you know, well, what what triggers your depression right. or what triggered it? Is, is there is there a specific thing that happened, you know, to cause this? And, you know, in my case, absolutely not. There, there mm. was not one thing that had gone from good to bad or that had gone wrong or no traumatic experiences. Uh Third week in November, I would feel myself, you know, feeling sadder and talking less. And I, I would always, you know, I, I whistle. I'm happy all the time. I walk around and whistle, you know, all of a sudden I'm not whistling. You know, I, I see no positivity in anything. You, again, you've already said this, but just to touch back on it, you knew that once spring happened, most of the time you would be right back to whistling Dennis. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as I said, I could honestly, I could have written it down on a calendar, you know, uh, each year, you know, hoping that it wasn't going to come back, you know, maybe it won't come back this year, but, uh, you know, it, it did, it did every year until it didn't go away. So ultimately you were diagnosed with major depressive disorder. Um, can you, can you walk us through that moment? Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, so I was, I, uh, and like I said, um, you know, when it, when it came to me, the, you know, seasonal affective disorder in, you know, November of 14, uh, you know, here we come, you know, in 2015, you know, it's March, it's April, uh, the snow's melting and the sun's coming out more, um, living in, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, we are like in the top 10 of the grayest skies uh, of the most of, out of the year. So, 
you know, I'm uh, thinking it's going to go away. Uh, it, and as I said, um, it didn't go away. It had gotten worse. I, I went, you know, I was being, I was a self-employed contractor with a few guys under me. And uh, this last time, you know, I, I'll never forget it. We were building a deck on a house. It was winter, but spring was coming. Um, it had gotten so bad, uh, you know, by March that I, I was unable to, you know, uh, to finish that job that I was doing and we still had another deck to build for them. Um, so, you know, thankfully for that part, my guys were able to go and finish it for me, but um, the, the, the seasonal affective disorder, um, I realized, you know, that it was getting worse and turning into something else when I was attempting to go meet my guys at that job site and, and instead not making it all the way there, I would pull over and park in a parking lot for a store uh, and mm -hmm. just want to fall asleep you know I, I like didn't even want to face anything so uh you know anxiety had multiplied the, the depressive symptoms you know every one of them multi had multiplied and uh that then i realized you know um this this is something more at what point were you able to seek treatment I, I uh, to be honest with you, I um, I refused, uh, you know, treatment. Mm -hmm. I, I refused, uh, you know, I didn't want to go to to, uh, to counseling, whether it was individual or group. I I didn't want to I didn't want to go see another doctor by this time because I, I had already, you know, over the years with seasonal affective disorder tried so many medications, uh, you know, been prescribed so many antidepressants and, you know, that nothing was working. So, you know, at this point, you know, all hope is gone. And, you know, being in that depressive state of mind, uh, like I said, nothing is positive. You, you can find something negative about, you know, a diamond falling from the sky and landing in your hand. Um, it's just, there's something negative that your depressive mind is going to find about that. So I, I was, you know, against it. I was like, why? It's not gonna work, I'm broken. Nothing's gonna work, no medicine's gonna work, no talk's gonna work, no therapy, no psychiatrist, not gonna work. So I did, I didn't, um, I, I didn't go, you know, trying to do anything uh, about it or try to receive anything for for quite a while um, into being majorly depressed. Um, I mean, I would have to say like nine months into that, uh, nine months into that major depressive episode, um, that is when I lost my son in a car accident and uh, my family had had literally put me on suicide watch. They uh, took my car keys. Um, I, when my wife went to work, I was dropped off at my mother's and, you know, I would spend the day with my mom until my wife was done working. They figured that was it. You know, I couldn't take any more than that. Um, so, you know, I uh, made it through that. And, and I have to share this because it, it completely still baffles me um 
So, and it's important, I think, because, uh, you know, my son's accident, um, you know, um, two days after that, three days going, you know, going through the funeral arrangements and everything, um, my, my depression, I thought, had been lifted, like completely gone. I swear to you that, you know, I, I was grieving, um, you know, um, however I did that, I still, you know, don't know, um, but I was no longer feeling any symptoms of depression like I had been for the nine months prior to that. And, and I, I couldn't explain that. And, and I, I couldn't figure it out. I'm like back out working and, and you know, uh, things like that. And I, I had asked a, uh, I had asked a doctor about it and, um, uh, my doctor said to me, you know, I'm like, it's gone. It's gone. He said, what are you going to do if it comes back? Because most likely it will. And I just said, well, then why, why, why is it gone now? Why am I not in a corner in a fetal position? Like, you know, like I was basically. And he said to me that the, the trauma uh, from the trauma, the brain has a way of protecting, protecting you. So right. it actually just moved the depression into another part of my mind and it came back, but and it, it came back just as bad as it was, uh, you know, um, probably three weeks later, you know, I got about a three week break and, um, it, it came back full force. And then I, uh, you know, I don't even know if I agreed to help then, but um, my mom had uh, taken me to a, a treatment, a mental health uh, facility um, nearby and said to uh, go in and see what they say, you know, and um, she said, I, I'll be out here and she left and uh, so it, it wasn't that nearby where I could walk uh, home. So I, you know, had to either walk somewhere or go back in and see what they said. So I went back in and, and I scheduled the, uh, the appointment for an assessment. No, we, we here at DBSA appreciate you sharing that experience. We know that um, a lot of our, the peers that we work with also experience uh, tragedy, tragedy. So I know that, that hearing you talk about that is very helpful, especially um, talking about the part where um, you said that you, for a, a small period of time, you felt better. Like you said, you talked to your clinician and they said, hey, what what will happen if this comes, if this comes back? Um, so you were living with depression for how long? About two years before your treatment changed? Uh, yeah, yes, I was, um, I was, uh, you know, 18 and 19. Well, actually, yeah, um, 20, over 20 months. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I was 20 something months, just under two years. And then what happened, you know, just under those two years? What, something changed. What was it? So, so throughout, throughout these two years, um, as I said, I was a, uh, self-employed contractor prior to, uh, you know, my de depression, uh, you know, completely, uh, you know, feeling like, uh, you know, it made me incapable of functioning like I used to. So, um, 
I I had tried uh, had tried working um, a few places. Um, I I got hired, uh, you know, doing basically the same thing I did for myself, and uh, I I couldn't function on a high enough level to you know to stick it out. I, I, I did it for as long as I could. It might have been close to a month and then I just had to quit. I was tired of faking. I was tired of struggling and pushing and forcing. And um, I, I did that two more times. Um, I, I went to another place and then I actually got hired back to the first place I quit. And this was all for good money. Um, but, you know, it didn't matter. But I was used to being the one who paid the bills, who made, you know, all the payments and made mm -hmm. sure the kids had what they wanted and needed. So I tried. And, um, you know, my my wife finally had said to me, um, look, it's obvious that you you can't you can't you can't do this um she's like I, I see you like you know fighting as hard as you can to try it but you cannot do this you need to you need to do you need to do you um you know before you can do us you know you're able to you, you got to take care of yourself uh so um you know th those two years were rough and uh and, and I was working, um, I tried doing one last thing for myself. I, I was building a small pool deck uh, for, a, for a lady who lived near my sister. Uh, and my sister had come down and, you know, she knew I was there working and it was just me. And uh, she had come down and talked to me that day. And uh, I, I was struggling still, you know, she could see it. I, I had gone from the most talkative, outgoing, life of the party, happy, life-loving, like, person, uh, you know, to, to a shell of a brother, a shell mm -hmm. of a father, uh, and everything. You go into mom's every Sunday and not talking to anybody because I'm so stuck in my depression and I can't even speak. Uh, so, uh, you know, she, she'd been noticing that and we were always close. And uh, she mentioned a, a friend of hers um, who lived across the street from her, um, who, sees a, who sees a psychiatrist who, um, it, you know, wasn't taking any new patients at the time, except for by referral. Mm. And uh, she said, if, if it's okay with you, um, I would, you know, would like to talk to her further and see, you know, if it's a possibility. And she come back down uh, that day and said, uh, my, my friend said that she is going to refer you to her doctor. Um, she said he does something different and uh, I think you should, you should go see him. Got you. And what would you say to a peer that's in that position that that you were in, someone who is in that same position, someone who has gone through all of these things um, and it, and it, it doesn't feel like it's working? Like what what made you say, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to go out on a limb and, and visit this clinician? So, so there, there, you know, you, what, what kept me, uh, you know, what kept me fighting uh, and, you know, just giving me that little bit of you have to try whether you know you want to or not um you have to because and and you need to you, people need to find that one thing 
Um, you know, there's something for everyone. Uh, you know, I believe that everybody, you know, has has something that's worth holding on to that, you know, will, you know, um, give them a reason to, you know, to try one more thing, to try one more time, mm-hmm. um, you know, because that one more time might be the might be the time that you need it might be the thing that you have been needing and if you don't try it you're you're not gonna find out you know so right so we we you get to this new clinician and he introduces um something uh new to you um something that we we spoke about earlier in the podcast which is uh pharmacogenetic testing how did that um testing impact your treatment that testing had impacted my treatment to an extent that I, I could never possibly express enough thanks and how grateful I am to this woman who was a friend of my sister's but a stranger to me, uh, referring me to, to have the opportunity to, to have this testing done that I had never even known existed. I, I, I never even thought that there was something like that out there. And, and had I not agreed to go see this one last guy one more time, uh, try one more thing, uh, it would be, my world would be completely different than it is right now. Yeah. So what, what did it do? So you took the test and then what happened? So I, I, uh, my very first appointment, uh, with this, uh, you know, new doctor, um, he, he asked me, you know, about my history, um, about how many medications I've, you know, tried and, you know, what were the results and what are my symptoms? And, uh, he, he said, okay, I'm not going to play this uh, trial and error. I think he said, I'm not gonna play this trial and error game with you. You've been through that way, way too many times already. Uh, he said, I'm gonna swab your mouth and I wanna send this out and I'll have it back in two days and I'll call you. And he called me two days later and he said, the results are in, can you you know, stop down? tomorrow um, and I said absolutely and uh, it still still blows my mind um, that you know um, now mind you I had you know agreed to you know begin going to an intensive outpatient therapy Mm -hmm. group uh, you know in in the mix of this uh, where I was just showing up. I was just being that shell. My my head was staying down and I wasn't saying a word. I wasn't participating. I was there, you know. So um the uh the the medications through the pharmacogenic DNA testing, uh, you know, whatever I had started taking uh something that was, you know, in my in my green list. And mm-hmm. uh I, you know, within I wanted, I, it was less than two weeks. It, it was, I believe, 12 days. Wow. That I started, I, I, um, my wife had said, did you just whistle? Mm. And, and she said, as annoying as that used to be, she said, I miss it. And everything just got better from there. Got you. So 
you get the recommendation um, from this test, you're also in the um, this intensive outpatient um, therapy. Are you now that you're taking this medicine? I think you called it your green list. Now that you're taking um, this medicine from your green list, are you now also participating in the um, outpatient group? So, so that, that, you know, 12th day or so, um, and, uh, I, my head's up now, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm awake, uh, paying attention a little bit and, uh, like the following week, um, I'm, I'm participating, uh, you know, and, and later that week or the very next week, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a little bit more than participating. I'm offering people resources. I'm, you know, uh, you know, telling the lady who, who can't find a bed, you know, where she can get help getting a free bed. Um, you know, talking to the therapist, like, you know, she was a therapist in a group. So I was like, yeah, you, you start explaining your system symptoms and how you're feeling and what you're going through and, and and a therapist is you know always yeah yeah uh-huh yeah yeah i know i know no you don't know you I, and i told her that bluntly like you're great at what you do but you don't know you don't know what these people are going through what's going through their minds or how they're feeling because if you've never been depressed you mm -hmm. can't you can't know yeah. So Whistling Dennis has now showed up at support group and he's saying, hey, peers need other peers to uh, talk to. Right. I had said to the therapist after you're great at what you do, but you don't understand 100 percent. I suggested that they have somebody who can relate on all levels with these people in this group, including myself, that, you know, not that is not the therapist to take the therapist's place, but maybe sit in, uh, you know, maybe be in those groups and somebody that can truly relate to them on the level that they are on, which is a very low level, unfortunately, but somebody who has been there, you know, at least been where they are, I, you know, to talk to who can relate. And she is the one who said, there is someone, something like that, that exists. There's, it's called a certified peer specialist. And um, that therapist ended up writing my letter of recommendation for me to become certified. Yeah. So you're, you're touching on a tenant that uh, we believe here at DBSA. And we believe that Peer support is paramount in helping individuals who live with mood disorder um, achieve wellness. So walk us a little bit through how you went from doing construction to becoming a certified peer specialist. You talked about the therapist um, writing your recommendation letter, but what happened after that? Um, so, so, I mean, you know, prior to that, like flashback, you know, to, to losing my son and his friends all being, you know, under 20 years old, under 18, uh, you know, it's sticking by my side. And, and I, you know, now I began taking them, that group of kids to, to group therapy in the mm -hmm. evening, uh, once a week. Um, and and I, I started seeing like you know we need each other um and and that just you know got me 
and then the therapist conversation and uh you know i i started looking into it and I, i'm like this is something that you know i think i would truly enjoy i mean i enjoyed contracting for the money um and then it, but uh, i had uh so i'd gone through the certification training now um it's just what i felt i wanted to do um and i had uh, I had began making phone call to a treatment uh, organization facility and, you know, we're not hiring at this time, um, but give us a call back and we're not hiring yet. We're not hiring yet. And um, now I'm persistent. Uh, you know, now I'm whistling Dennis. So, uh, you know, I kept on on this lady and uh, she actually ended up promoting a certified peer specialist to a certified peer specialist supervisor in order to create a position there for me to be a certified peer specialist. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So we went from having seasonal affective disorder to major depressive disorder um, to, um, you know, just taking a chance on a clinician that you had never met with before and taking a test that you've never um that you never even heard of what would you say to someone who is who is maybe a little apprehensive they've been on a, a similar journey maybe apprehensive about you know taking this pharmacogenetic testing i i, I mean i would definitely say you know with being where i you know am now i you know in a position where i've not only uh worked in multiple programs uh over the past few years, uh, you know, have been approached and asked to um, have become very close with, um, you know, the, the people in NAMI and the people higher up in NAMI. And a little flashback piece of uh, something I'm gonna let you know is that the organization, which I uh, refer to that I continuously called to, uh, you know, become employed at I'm still working there today going on five years and it is actually the same organization where I attended intensive outpatient treatment so I'm you know working where I was uh you know receiving my treatment um so there's so many possibilities uh and, and I'll say again, without without this uh pharmacogenic you know testing I I, I don't I don't, it would be, it would, I, I'm 100% sure that everything would be, you know, completely opposite uh, as it is today. Um, so, you know, if you, you want to talk about, you know, giving something a chance, um, you're giving, you're giving medications a, a chance anyway, you know, like, let's, let's try this one for eight to 12 weeks. Let's, let's try this one for 10 to 14 weeks. Let's try this one for another two months. Like, how about we try something with, with, with a little bit of evidence behind it, with a little bit of relation to me personally, you know, um, so, you know, having your DNA thrown in the mix, you know, to be considered, uh, you know, for something that may work for you, is uh it's a whole new ball game yeah well we appreciate your time with us here today dennis um is there anything else you would like our audience to know um or any resources or anything uh any lasting last second thoughts there's uh, i just want to i just want to uh you know beg 
beg every person who hears this to not give up, uh, you know, to, to try that one more thing, you know, to, to, to listen to somebody, you know, who's talking about something, uh, you know, in reference to what you're going through, what you've been through, talk to somebody who's been there, uh, you know, see how they made it. And, you know, don't, don't be afraid to try that one last thing. You don't, you, you'll never know what's on the other side of that door until you open it, you know, so you got to open it. You got to find out you can make it. Thanks for that, Dennis. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Now it's time for some footnotes. If you want to learn more about pharmacogenetic testing, you can visit our website at dbsalliance.org slash pharmacogenetic. That's P-H-A-R-M-A-C-O-G-E-N-E-T-I-C. Or you can go to wellness, treatment options, and then click on what is pharmacogenetic testing to learn more. If you want to find out more about what a peer specialist is and the DBSA peer specialist training program, you can visit our website at dbsalliance.org slash peer specialist. We would also like to take this time to thank partners like Myriad. Their support helps us bring important information to you wherever you are for free. Thank you.